Welcome to Fast Frontiers. I am your host, Tim Shigel, Managing Partner of Refinery Ventures. In this episode, we're talking to my good friend, Gokul Rajaram. Gokul and I met when I was launching Share This, and I asked him to be an advisor. He was uh, the Director of Product Management for Google AdSense, where he launched that product very successfully, and went on to have a terrific career as VP of Advertising at Facebook early on, uh, Square, where he was part of the executive team, and DoorDash, where he leads Caviar, their premium food ordering service. Gokul is also on the boards of Coinbase, Pinterest, and the Trade Desk. He's a prolific angel investor, terrific human, good friend, and the the best product person you could imagine. There's so much to learn from Gokul, but the biggest theme or so what that I hope you take away from this conversation is to stay focused on the problem, not the product. Stop celebrating features, as Gokul says. Keep setting goals and solving problems. So please enjoy my conversation with Gokul Rajaram. Gokul, welcome to Fast Frontiers. I'm so glad you're here. This has been a long time coming. Tim, it's awesome to be here. Thank you for having me. It has been a long time, uh, but we're here now, finally. Yeah, we're here, we're here. We've managed to carve time out of our schedules to get together to talk about some, lay down some wisdom for some entrepreneurs. Hopefully, I can't think of a better person to uh, have this conversation with. The, The amount of experience you have, your own operational experience, as well as the number of startups that you've invested in as angel investors, probably somewhere in the order of a couple hundred thousand, I would imagine at this point, right? <laughs> Sometimes feels that way. So you and I met when I was starting Share This and you were still at Google and launched Google AdSense and came out as advisor for just a short period of time before you went on to Facebook and continued with your legendary career. And uh, we've stayed in touch. I really appreciate that. Love checking in with you. And uh, you've had you've given some great talks um, about what it means basically to be a product manager, uh, what it means to or how to how to make decisions on on products and strategy, and there's so much there. So I, I want to be able to kind of see if we can add to that today, but start out at least with a little bit more on your background and kind of what what has what has shaped or formed your your lens on technology in the startup world. It's I still remember those days of riffing on ad advertising technology when you're running shares and I was at Google. And uh, it's interesting. I think uh, when I look back, the influences that have shaped my career have really been two things. One, people. And second, I call it curiosity. So I feel being exposed to very high caliber people and being surrounded by high caliber people makes you makes you better at everything you do because you get challenged, you get questioned. So I always encourage people to join environments where you feel that you're not going to be the smartest or the best person in the room, but there are people who are much better or smarter than you. And I tried to, I, I, I didn't actually follow this consciously, but I ended up in environments where I was never the smartest or the best at anything, but there were always people who I could look up to and learn from and constantly aspire to be better at, whether it was Google or Facebook or Square or even a DoorDash. And, uh, did, some uh, of that come, did some of that come from your family? And your your upbringing, I think it it does. My uh, my dad was an engineer and my mom was a teacher, and uh, part of the thing they instilled in me was just try to keep learning, try to be humble, and uh, it's not about what you accomplish; it's how it's about 
you know, what you can learn and get better at every single day. Mm-hmm. To me, I was meeting with a product manager who was pretty, pretty early in the career. They said, oh, wow, I've been looking to meeting with you. You are the guru. I said, I'm actually the learner, like everyone. <laughs> and I don't want to think of, no, if you, as soon as you start thinking of the guru, that's it. I think you, you mentally plateau and you decline. You've got to think of yourself as a learner. Even Elon Musk every day is learning think new things. Every single one of us can learn. Warren Buffett, all of these folks, Bill Gates. So I think the learning mentality and that I think comes with surrounding yourself with people. They, there's a saying that you're the average of the five closest people you, you, you are friends with. But I think it applies to work also, applies to everything. So if those five people help you raise your average, uh, you're going to be better every single day. The second thing is curiosity. That that's you know, probably why you do so much investing. That's why I do it. It's I, I feel like I'm a student of how a business business formation, business structure. Like every day you're learning, and that's what makes it fun, right? And you you start building organizations with a clean piece of paper every time. Exactly right. I think uh, entrepreneurs. They, I mean, that's why you go in with a completely open beginner's mind with these with these meetings with these to these meetings with these entrepreneurs, and if you do you can learn so much from them. I think if you go in with a, I know it all, I'll teach you this. No, no, no. you got to just go with a beginner's mind and that helps massively. Um, the other thing I've, uh, Tim, that has shaped my, my outlook is curiosity. And I'll give you a story. Uh, when I joined Google first, I was, I was a product manager on uh, search syndication where, and, uh, where we would basically take search, Google search and Google ads and syndicate it to other partners like AOL and others. And I was working on various products in that, that front. And then I, I started around 5, 6 p.m. after people would go home. Most people, I would finish my work for the day and I'd be walking around the offices. Google back then had offices where four or five people received in a small office. And I walked down the corridor and I came across five engineers or four engineers in an office working on something. I was like, hey, what are you doing? What are you working on? I would just introduce myself. I'm new, two months old. Um, and they were like, oh yeah, Sergey Brin, uh, the co-founder of Google, he told us to start exploring how to uh, use uh, the search technology, the technology that essentially converts keywords into topics to do the reverse, uh, to figure out how to take a web page and extract what topics are most meaningful on that page and then show ads on it. And, uh, you know, we have, we've just started to do some explorations and there's some promising results, but we don't quite know how to make it into a product. So I was like, oh, that's cool. Can I be your PM? Uh, you don't have any PM. Well, they were like, yeah, but aren't you, uh, you just told us you're working on the search syndication stuff. It's like, yeah, that's true, but that's just my day job. You know, I can work with you in the evenings. So I basically started just doing that in addition to search syndication. And uh, after a couple of months, it became clear that that product was going to be, be essentially, I started essentially doing presentations for them, writing their presentations, figuring, going and talking to publishers, getting customers, trying to do all of, all of the stuff that PMs do in addition to doing my day job. And uh, three months from then, uh, my boss saw that and basically pushed me and pulled me, essentially put me 100% on that. And that product became Google AdSense. And so I always give that as an example of just being open-minded and asking people. Almost every good opportunity I feel that has come my way has not been because of a structured process. It's been just being curious and open-minded and just asking people, hey, what are you working on? How can I help you? And if you just do that enough times, Good things happen. Yeah, and and uh, I, I always you know tell students something that I benefited from was just cold calling people. People love it if you call and you ask questions. You say, "Hey, you know what? I'm curious about something. Like, I, I just want to know." I'm like, wow, I'm glad you asked that question. Yeah, you know, it's a good question. 
It's, it's a great it's party amazing. trick also, actually. If you if you meet someone at a party, expressing curiosity about what they're doing is one of the best ways to start a conversation. Oh, that's so interesting. Tell me more. Because people are shocked. I'm an accountant. Oh, that's so interesting. Tell me more. People want to talk. People want to tell you more about themselves and what they're working on. Right, absolutely. That's how you build bonds and connections. And I, the other thing, I think a lot of people, and that's one of the challenges with the, with I think not being in person, they've got to find new ways of building relationships at work because relationships, look, we've now had a relationship of 15 years now, Tim. And even though now we live in different parts of the country, we still are very easily able to communicate because we, we used to meet each other in person quite often 15 years ago. And that has translated and we built a deep relationship. And I think, you know, over Zoom, you form certain kind of relationship. And I think it's up to us to figure out how to, how to build deeper relationships, which are not just focused on very transactional things, but are just helping, helping others and helping each other. Well, I'm hoping that young, young folks uh, value that even more. We may have taken it for granted back then. Now they don't. If you, if you entered the workforce in this COVID era and you've missed that, I'm hoping that they go, oh, you know what? We, we need to do that in a much more intentional way. 100% agree. You're known and you, you developed this SPADE framework, S-P-A-D-E. Do you want to just tell the listeners a little bit about that and then we'll go from there. Yeah, uh, I'll give you the story. A story is always more interesting. Around, It's a decision-making framework. And there are two stories associated with it. One is how I, uh, how I even started rethinking decision-making. Uh, basically, uh, I was at Google. This was in uh, 2006, I think. I was working on display advertising with, as part of AdSense. And I was in a meeting with Eric Schmidt, the CEO of Google back then. Uh, and we were presenting uh, something. I forgot what. It was something related to the ads business. And the discussion got heated. And then Eric basically said, hey, hang on, stop. Who's responsible for this decision? And I'm mortified to say that three people, including me, simultaneously raised their hand. (laughs) And Eric was like, hang on, three decisions, three three decision makers means there's no owner of this. Three owners means there's no owner. So I'm ending this meeting right now. And I want you to leave the room. Uh, I don't want you to return here until you figure out who the owner is. And with that, he adjourned the meeting and the team, we were, he dismissed us. And that made me realize that consensus is, is, the, is, is the, uh, not, not a good way, uh, not a good decision-making framework, because by trying to make everyone having an input into the decision, no one truly owns the decision. And um, so it really came to crystallize when at Square, many years later, about seven, eight years later, uh, we did a survey of employees, like many companies do, the Employee Pulse Survey. And the number one reason for dissatisfaction in 2014 was that people said decisions were not transparent. It was not clear what how decisions were being made, how they were communicated, who was making them, et cetera. Because we were making a lot of decisions, big decisions, and people just found out about them later. That's and, interesting. Uh, That's interesting. Yeah, because you talk about being transparent in a company, but I hadn't and and you know, showing stats and metrics and communication. But that's an interesting one that I don't know where decisions are being made. Because it, it, people are confused. People don't know how to get decisions, how to, how to make things happen. And, and so, they come, and, and so at, at the all hands, we typically used to present once every three months the results. And so Jack Dorsey, our CEO, basically said, you know, I see that uh, this is the top thing. Uh, I, I think I was scheduled to present right after him on something. He was like, he saw me standing waiting in the wings. He's like, Gokul is going to come back in one month or three weeks with a solution to this decision-making. I was like, okay, <laughs> you know, and then basically 
you know, when you make that kind of pronouncement in front of the company at the all hands, then you're like, okay, now you have three weeks to figure out what to do about decision-making. So I went back to thinking about the Google days, get a, got a couple of people together and we basically just, just broke down decisions. And we said, we have to start with the thesis that consensus doesn't work. And so we came up with this framework that really, uh, it should have been called PSADE because it's the most important thing over decisioning is the people involved and who the decision maker is. But for the ease of mnemonic uh, of, of acronym, we called it SPADE. And S stands, so each, each letter is an acronym. S stands for setting, which is the what, when, and how of the decision, what you're optimizing for, when you need to make it, what the decision is. What is crazy is many times people can't articulate exactly what the decision is. For example, you might say, oh, you know, I want to decide what country to launch in next. But actually, that's a broad question. That's not a specific enough decision because if you're a multi-product company, the question is what product to launch and what company to launch it in. So the goal is to really be very specific. And then the other thing people are not clear about is what you're optimizing for. So S is all about what are you optimizing for? What's the decision? When does it need to be made by, et cetera, the context. The P, like I said, the P is people. It's arguably the most important part of the decision. It is who is the decision maker first and foremost. And like I said, it's not about multiple people. It has to be one person who makes a decision. And then there's a set of people who are consulted. And then there's a approver of the decision who typically has veto power, which they use very sparingly, not often. And they only use it if they feel the process has not been followed much more so than anything else. If they feel the process was not followed properly, that's when they should theoretically use it. But they could use for other reasons in theory. The, uh, the decision maker is the most important role. Decision maker should be the person who's also accountable for the results of the decision. Uh, because think about all the times that you've been handed a decision that someone else has made and you are supposed to implement it and you're accountable for the success or failure. It, it's one of the most disempowering things when you're like, well, I don't really know how it was made. I don't really agree with it. But now you're telling me that I'm accountable for the success and failure. You've already made the decision and I, I'm supposed to execute on it. So we feel that you need to align execution and accountability with decision-making and have that person, okay, you made the decision, great. Let's see how you execute on it. And, and let's see you own the, own the decision, essentially. Not just own making the decision, but own executing implementing the decision. Um, and then A is around alternatives, um, which is around what are the, what are the different ways, what are the different choices that you have, which is again, really interesting. Many companies, uh, many, many teams we, we saw initially, one of the failure cases was, uh, they tried to get into micro variants of the same kind of, uh, same kind of uh, uh, choice. For example, if you have a pricing decision, uh, you know, we had a team that presented, oh, they're going to have pricing, which is 5.5% or 5.75% or 5.8%. We were like, hang on, are you, did you first explore at a higher level? Should you have 5.5% or 4% plus 30 cents, which is a percentage in a flat fee, which are very different kinds of pricing and the optimum for different things. Let's first make the decision of whether you want to go with purely transaction percentage pricing or percentage base plus a flat fee pricing. And then we can figure out what percentage makes sense. And so you've got to make sure options are sufficiently different from each other that you are exploring all parts of the solution space versus their microwaves of the same thing. Often it seems like, let me know if you if this has been your experience. People will maybe um, talk about that, kind of improvise on what those alternatives are versus going doing the homework, benchmarking, saying, "Hey, here are the four or five, and here are the implications of each." Now that's let's decide. Exactly right. That's exactly that's the that's why we want the most time to be spent on the A. And in fact, what we started doing at Square was we saw that people were 
are doing the D and E, D's decision, the actual decision, arriving at the decision, and E's explaining it. They were just shoehorning these. They were just creating some options just to kind of justify the decision and then presenting it. So we said, okay, we are not going to make a decision at all right now. You're going to spend, we just called it the SPA process, SPA. We said, you're going to spend most of your time, you're going to spend a month actually coming up with all these options. Um, and then you're going to flesh it out, like you said, Tim. You're going to really flesh out the quantitative implications of each option and compare them against what you're optimizing for the objective function. The important thing to notice is that this framework should not be used for the day-to-day -day reversible decisions. It has to be used for any decision-making framework is by nature somewhat heavyweight. So it be used for things that are more irreversible, one-way door decisions that are harder to reverse, that are more gravitas, that are more important to make, and that are fewer and fewer. You can't use them for... We call, we use a joke, what's, what favorite kombucha to select out of the, you know, company, you know, the, the, the snack bar. That's not what it's for. It's really for things like country entry. And once you enter a country, you're not going to be able to exit that country easily for years. Reputational risk, all kinds of risks. So should you enter a country? Which country should you enter next? Huge decision, huge decision. And so those kinds of decisions are naming. It's hard to reverse once you've named something or pricing also, very especially hardware prices. So a bunch of things that are, hard to reverse integration planning like MNDA is a very good one right MNDA is a great one MNDA is actually excellent if you think about the three options build buy and partner and you've got to flesh out all three if you just blindly go in no no well good company will ever say yeah they'll always say what does it take to build why are you buying and can I partner and get most of the economics and most of the upside through partnership you've got to flesh out all three good yeah, and if you don't have those options then you're not really making a decision it's Exactly. Right. We're just like, exactly, exactly right. So that's, that's a framework. I think uh, it's been now adopted by more companies. And uh, in general, I realized these frameworks are all, I think, important, but what is important is, I think, uh, useful, but I don't think that, that there's other frameworks like RACE, RACE, or RACE, there are all these, but it doesn't matter what framework you use. It's good to use it. It's good to know. It's most important to figure out which decision you use it for. And then you've got to know the right, the right person this making the decision and driving the process makes a huge difference. Um, What's interesting on the alternatives, I think that's that is sometimes the hardest work. And hardest. what it makes me think about is so my daughter studied uh, industrial design, one of the top design schools in the country. What they did, and it was the hardest thing for them to do, they had to do like a project for the weekend or for the night, go do 50 sketches of alternative ways to do a chair. And the important thing was not that the sketches had to be good at all, right? But they had to think about how to create all these alternatives, alternative designs, right? Just, just at a basic level. And that was, as I watched, watched her, that was like the hardest part of everything. And, and it becomes one of their greatest capabilities later in life because they learn to explore alternatives first. And once you do that, it makes it so much easier and, and gives you confidence when you go down the path that you finally choose to go down. Such a great story. Such a great story. Love it. Exactly right. That makes the point very powerful. So one of the things we talked about when we we're getting ready to, to have this conversation was this, um, this title product manager as, as we're focused on helping entrepreneurs build cultures around leadership and customer focus. I have a little hard time with it because people often fall into the trap of falling in love with the idea versus the problem. Right? So 
how have you seen organizations do a good job staying focused first primary on the problem and not not the product? It's a great question. I think uh, it's a great question and a great statement that ultimately it's true. What what matters at companies? I think I always tell, in fact, you articulated something very perfectly. When people say, should I start a company or not? I ask them the first question. Is there a problem, a customer problem that keeps you up at night? Uh, until you have that, until you're really, the problem is what? Because the problem, it's almost a not start thing that you want to accomplish and solve. And that through ups and downs will inspire you. If it's an idea or a thing that you want to do, but you don't know why you're doing it, that that's not going to sustain you through ups and downs, inevitable ups and downs. So you have to start with the why, the problem. And so I think uh, companies that do this well are first they they start with the the thesis, which is why are you doing this? In other words, uh, they they don't just any product. I think product teams can very quickly uh, fall into the danger of being feature factories, where they just like come up with ideas and just okay, I'll implement this feature. And you ask them at the end of the quarter what they accomplished. They'll just say, here's a list of features I launched. And this is true of very large companies also. There's a large company I'm an investor in, quite a large company. And I, I they were presenting their product roadmap and they, 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 were like, they were like 10 features. I'm like, folks, this is great, but what is the impact of the features? Have you, why are we doing this? And they didn't really have a good answer for them. They were like, well, you know, we, we feel that these are the right features to build, but like you said, I think ultimately you've got to start. What, what do you start with? You start with business outcomes, first and foremost. What are the business outcomes you want to accomplish as a company? From there, you want to see what are the customer outcomes. So business outcomes are things like revenue, GMV, gross profit, in net income, et cetera, financial uh, state, things. And even things like MAUs, DAUs, you know, monthly actives, all of those things. But, but then a retention numbers, et cetera, the business goals. So if you want to improve conversion, you can improve conversion in many different ways. Ultimately, what you want product teams to do is you want them to really build out this, this tree almost and group products or group ideas into what problems they're solving, what customer behaviors they're changing and what opportunities they are, they are, they are focused on changing. And I think that that's basically how we should organize teams. Teams, product teams should be organized based on either customer, changing customer outcomes, or even around opportunities. Uh, ideally, it should be product, because those are empowered product teams, because then product teams are not goal based on, do you launch a feature? I always tell a CEO who told me the other day, well, my goal, I'm going to tell the product team to launch an iOS app. I'm like, that is the most disempowering thing you're going to tell them to do, because why are they launching it? What's the reason? Well, it's to improve the DAUs, because if you have an app, People use the service more often, but give them that outcome and let them figure out if they want to do it to launching the, the iOS app, which they might not have the ability to do in, in a quarter, maybe. Or is there a, with the time frame you want it, is there a better way just with the website to do it? Whatever the cases they want to do, but give them an outcome. Give them an outcome and have them manage to an outcome and manage them to an outcome. That's the great way. Uh, a lot of people ask, you know, how do I know if my mission is clear and compelling? Like, what's the test I can use? And you just you just gave the perfect roadmap. What what's the change in behavior of your customers? What what change in behavior do you expect? And if it's if it's no change in behavior, either there's either no value or it's commodity product. You're just doing something somebody else does. Exactly. Does the feature even matter if it doesn't result in a change in customer behavior? It's like if a tree falling in the forest. If a cust- if you launch a feature and there's no change in customer behavior, you can discern. Does it even matter? Does it even matter? Yeah, absolutely. How often do you think companies should think about testing it and revisiting 
Yeah, because that changes over time, right? It's not a static thing, just like product market fit, right? You 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 think you have product market fit, but you're never really done, right? And and the environment's changing. So how do you think about the frequency? In an ideal world, almost every feature should be a hypothesis. Because what is a feature? Ultimately, a feature is mm-hmm. a hypothesis to to basically target a certain opportunity to change customer behavior. So, mm-hmm. and we don't know, look, I think we have say six different options, six different features we could launch to change this customer behavior. But we don't know which one will actually change it. We are guessing based on data, based on customer interviews, based on intuition, et cetera, we're guessing. So instead of spending a lot of time and effort and energy to launch this thing and then see, you know, two, three months down the road, it's to our advantage as a product team to quickly get a directional read on it by doing something scrappily. What can we do to approximate this feature in some way, shape, or form? Even maybe without using any engineers. I always try to challenge product teams. If you had zero engineers, could you implement this feature? Could you implement some, obviously not this perfectly, could you implement some facsimile of this feature using no-code tools, using you know Squarespace or Weebly or Wix or something and building a simple web page by using email, email your customers, you know, there are all these blind, blind things you can do or, or smoke screen things. You can just put a button there. It doesn't lead to the feature, but you take them to a landing page and get them to choose something. And then you say, sorry, we're working on this, but you register the interest this way. They're actually making. So I think you've got to try to figure out how to get more data because we all know what customers tell you is different than what they do. And so the only way that you can, I think very quickly move. And I, I strongly believe that product teams that, can test hypotheses quickly are the ones that win. So you can't wait for three months to test a hypothesis. If you can test one in two weeks in one way, shape or form and get signal, and then you decide, okay, should I then invest more resources into fully fleshing it out or should I go on to my next hypothesis? So it's like a, it's like a muscle that the company organization needs to develop kind of culturally. Exactly. To, and so many don't, you know, it just, you see so many that, you know, they, they assume that, their feature's really great and it's going to be perfect or they don't exactly. test enough alternatives. And it comes from, I think, thinking that every feature has to be built by engineering and engineering is the scarcest, most expensive resource. And engineers also are upset when they do something and it doesn't work out. They're much happier if you get data. Look, we did all this work. Look, 80% of customers are clicking on this. We just need to build this other thing and it's going to... Right, know, and, and development's a whole lot easier when you know the target, when you know exactly, exactly what you're building. When you're still guessing and making it up along the way, that's where you lead to projects that are late and, you know... And, don't, uh, and, and are not, not effective. They, don't, not they effective. don't move customer behavior. They don't change Even customer worse. Behavior. Exactly. Right. Yeah, absolutely. What, what are some of the latest... How, I'm kind of thinking, how has this changed over time over the last 10 or 15 years? What are some of the latest tools that you've seen that help organizations do a better job in this regard? I think the biggest one, I think, is the rise of product analytics as a function. I think uh, back 10 years ago, analysts would be business analysts. They would create dashboards, report on performance of the business. The rise of product analysts, which are now increasingly, I, I tweeted about this a few months ago, I increasingly think the product engineering design team should be a, should be a quartet, not a troika. And product analysts should be an important part of it. Because when you are running experiments, when you're running testing hypothesis, you also need to make sure that your experiments are run on uh, unbiased samples and that, that you are, if you're running an experiment, they are, the results are statistically significant to be able to conclude things. And analysts can actually do many good things. They can help you figure out what your goals should be, first of all, because you have a certain set of, one of the things that 
as teams start working together, they get a better intuition of what their goal should be. But it's still somewhat rough. With an analyst, you can be much more precise about setting good goals. Uh, second, they can help you uh, get data to choose between different options roughly. If, like you said, initially you don't have data, you want to try experiments, but which of those features should you even experiment on? They can give you some more data. And third, they can help you make sure they're running the right, correct, correct experiments are being run in a, in a, in a scientific way, as scientific way as possible in, in the real world, uh, hurly burly. So I've seen good product analysts. I think companies still never said my, I, I actually, when I joined Square, the one of the rules I put into place is launch does not equal success. We should never celebrate feature launches. What is the feature launch? We just launch something that doesn't mean anything. Well, success should be customer adoption, customer behavior change, you know, go outcome change. Hypothesis confirmed. <laughs> Hypothesis confirmed. Exactly, right? right? It's like a science experiment. You're yeah. like, do you celebrate when you actually run the experiment? No. When you actually, you know, the hypothesis is verified, that's when you celebrate. And so I think a lot of companies, unfortunately, if you look at all the press releases, right? It's like, we launched XYZ, okay. So what? Tell me exactly. And many times they're not because they don't have anything. And that's, that's, that's high. It's, and you it's see, like, you see people put the, that in, um, in their OKRs as well. Exactly. Exactly. Okay. So I think I like saying feature launch is not a goal. Feature launch is not an outcome. It should be called an experiment, which is slowly rolling out 100%. And we should not even roll it out. In fact, I'm not going to let you launch this feature until you prove with 1% or 5% because an additional feature makes life more complex for my customers. I'm not going to let you launch this feature and make their life more complex until you prove to me that the small audience that you're working with have product market fit with their audience, have are actually changing behavior in the way your hypothesis said it would, are actually using the feature, are loving the feature, are recommending the feature, whatever the case may be. So that's some of the best, best practices where you don't let teams actually launch things broadly until they have proven out the hypothesis. So what are, what are some of the areas that you're particularly interested in from a technology and investing standpoint? I think crypto, crypto is, I think crypto and web three is, uh, is, is, uh, I sit on the board of Coinbase. And so I, I, I was, uh, I think square was, very early in Bitcoin, well, not very early, very early would be 2013, but moderately early 2016, 17. And so that's when I first got to read the first Bitcoin papers because Jack, our CEO at Square, was very much an evangelist of Bitcoin. So he really encouraged everyone, the management team, even had Bitcoin summits, cryptocurrency summits within the company. And I think all of, much, much of Square got into Bitcoin. And then that that's when I got into it. And then... Uh, was just uh, was more academic, but then joined the board of Coinbase. So have a front row into some of the developments there. And uh, I think it's, there are so many possibilities. I think even, even seeing the two prominent, most prominent tokens, one is Bitcoin, which is definitely more of a store of value. People call it digital gold. And then you have Ether, which is much more of a programmable layer uh, for Web3 and so on, where you can build uh, applications on it. You can be decentralized applications or you can build, you can morph it into all these different ways. So, uh, the the applications are endless. I think there's like with any frontier technology, there's uh, there's risks, there's uh, there's various scams and frauds. But I think if you look 10, 20, 30 years from now, and, and that's why you see many young smart people going into crypto. I think uh, a lot of people are leaving Web two companies. I also see the other interesting thing I'm seeing from the investing perspective, Tim, is I'm seeing a lot of Web two technologies, uh, infrastructure technologies being rebuilt for Web three. For example, I've now seen. Um, like analytics, like Amplitude and, and Mixpanel, et cetera, rebuilt for Web3. I've seen social networking now 
being rebuilt for Web3. I'm seeing things like segment and marketing tech being rebuilt for Web3. Seeing MailChimp and messaging, even things like messaging and email don't really exist in Web3. So they're being rebuilt because the wallet is the ultimate consumer here. So instead of a consumer identity, the wallet is a consumer identity. So people are trying to figure out, okay, how do I build analytics around wallets? How do I build you know, social networks around wallets? How do I build identity around wallets? How do I build you know, uh, you know, there are all these interesting things you can build around wallets. And then around the blockchain itself, there are all these protocols. How do you connect them, bridge them? How do you make, one of the challenges with transacting in crypto today is transaction fees are quite high. They're called gas fees. They're quite high because there's a lot of computation that happens. So how do you lower gas fees? And also the number of transactions um, per second is not very high. So there are newer blockchains that have increased the throughput and lowered the fees there's great initiatives there. So lots of interesting and fun things going on. I think it's so much that you can't keep track of all of it. And you've got to, as an investor, got to at any point in time, focus on one segment of it and be and go deep uh, because there's just, just Cambrian innovation explosion. The other thing that would realize is it's a global market. Some of the best teams are in Asia, India, et cetera, because it's completely level playing field now. Unlike the U.S. stock market, which are only open, you know, certain times of the day and only allowed, only certain people can participate in it as market makers. Anyone can come with the, I mean, I have friends who have created just fake tokens in their own name, like the Scott token. Someone sent me to my wallet, hundred Scott tokens, which have like no value. But I was like, wow, I didn't know that you could, that was like how easy, it's like, yeah, I just created tokens in my name, you know, super easily. So you can do all of these cool things and play around with uh, creating new currencies. It is a, it is amazing. And, uh, it, and like you said, it's early. I mean, there's decades of innovation that's going to come out of this. Exactly. And, and maybe, you know, in, in today's current market environment in particular, right. What kind of pieces of wisdom would you share with entrepreneurs who are raising money, uh, who have raised money, who are trying to build companies in this environment? Yeah, it's a, it's an interesting environment, isn't it, Tim? You and I are both seeing it. I mean, volatility is just off the charts. I mean, and, uh, uh, there was, uh, Anyway, I think I think uh, the 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 key two or three things that that I I think hold constant through all these cycles is one, uh, you got to focus on a problem, and you got to make sure that the customer problem is real, and uh, I think a lot of uh, especially B two B, a lot of entrepreneurs I think sometimes mistake. Uh, I think someone said this when you when you ask an as uh, when you ask a prospect, oh, do you like this? Uh, do, do you think this is an interesting problem, or do you think I'm building this? A lot of customer interviews focus too much on the product you're building versus forget the product I'm building. What are your top three problems? And so you realize that sometimes the problem you're trying to solve, they'll say, when you ask them, is this problem interesting? They'll say, yeah, that's interesting. When you ask them for what are your top three problems, forget what I'm building. They'll have a completely different set of top three problems. So if it's not a top three problem for your target customer, they're probably not going to buy it. They're not probably going to consider it. It's not a hair on fire problem. So you've got to be solving hair on fire problems for your customers, whatever they are, uh, whoever they are. I think that's really important. And if you're not, and if you're solving a nice problem, uh, there's just too many companies solving nice problems. Uh, and, and so uh, that, that's one. Second one is I think you really need to make sure that you understand what it means to be a venture comp- venture-backed company. It's going to be somewhat different now. It's, I think, uh, a lot of folks just feel like money raising, like, oh yeah, I race around, so I'm going to race the next round, next round, next round. As if that's, that's the goal or the outcome. Exactly. Wrong. Exactly. That's not the goal. That's not the goal anymore. So you've got to really understand what it means. And in many cases, the answer might be not to raise any more money, period. Get to cash flow positive, control your destiny. 
Because guess what? With every round you race, and some of the some of our friends who raced rounds that last year at crazy valuations are going to probably find it, you know, find some, you know, have, go through some pain this year or next year. You know, it, you know, you no longer control your destiny at that point because you have too many folks around the table. You have, you know, you basically have lost control of this baby of yours where maybe raising less money at a lower valuation and controlling and getting to cash flow positive faster and, 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 um, you know, would be better. And the third one is burn kills. I realized this, even the best companies, you know, if you're burned and there are many ways that you can measure your burn relative to your progress, but if you're burning too much of your progress, it is going to be, you are going to be in for a world of pain, I think. And so, uh, obviously as someone said to me, you can't starve your way to greatness. So that doesn't mean you've got to, but you've got to be very careful just because you raced especially if you raise a lot of money, doesn't mean you have to spend it instantly. Please be careful. Please make sure that you're hitting milestones. Please make sure you're looking at things like rule of 40, efficiency of sales and marketing spend, all of those things. You cannot be very careful. Burn kills. Burn absolutely kills. And, and that's that's the environment of starting a company in a, in a tougher environment or a down market is it creates more focus, ideally, and more discipline, right? So That's that exactly saying, right. Hey, how, what are my alternatives? You know, should I make this investment or not? Do I need to preserve cash, et cetera? Exactly. Focus on fewer things, focus on the fewer things. Instead of doing 10 different things, focus on the one, ideally one thing that most great companies have one amazing Google search still today. It's the like thing. most of the revenue is the thing. <laughs> yeah. Right. And then if companies are really lucky, they get two things. It can but last one a thing long can time. make you a really good company. That's awesome. Well, thank you, Gokul. Thanks for taking the time and sharing your your thoughts and insights. It's great to have you on Fast Frontiers. Tim, it's awesome to be here. Thank you for having me. And uh, thank you. Uh, great, great to have this discussion. Join us next week when we bring you my conversation with Dave Mawinney, Executive Director of the Schwartz Center for Entrepreneurship at Carnegie Mellon University. Thanks for listening to Fast Frontiers. If you like our show and want to know more, check out our website, fastfrontiers.com. If you've enjoyed this episode, please share it with others and leave us a review on your favorite podcast platform. The Fast Frontiers podcast is brought to you by Refinery Ventures. Our producer is Abby Fittis, audio engineering by Astronomic Audio, and our podcast platform is Casted. Casted.